Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. With the theme of the Christ of Christmas, I want to talk to you guys about the Christ of Christmas changes your focus. The Christ of Christmas changes your focus. And as I mentioned before, I'll be coming out of Luke, the second chapter, verses 8 through 20. And I do intend to read the um, entire kind of passage there just so that we have a full context. And then we're going to walk through the entire passage in the sermon. But the sermon aim for this morning is that believers would be intentional about sharpening their focus on Christ during this holiday season. Now, I'll be fair, Pastor, and we we know this. This is literally the aim every Christmas season. So this is not any new revelation. This is not any new hotness from the pulpit. Uh, But this is a constant, intentional reminder that if we're not careful during this time, right, our focus can get off of Christ. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy for that to happen. So let us now, looking at Luke, the second chapter, verses 8 through 20, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And there you will find these words, starting at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. (laughs) For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord hath made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Amen, amen, amen. Look, um, just by way of introduction, I, I want to share a story, and I do have permission to share this story uh, from the individual who is the, the main character of the story. But um, in preparation for this and thinking about focus, right, if you do a search of focus online, what you're going to see is a lot of stuff about focusing on yourself, focusing on your goals, focusing on what it is you want to accomplish, what it is you're trying to achieve. And there's no probably greater place that focus is talked about than in the sports world, right? We know, right, that that the greats in every sport, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, whatever it may be, bowling, whatever sport it is, one thing that they have is focus. It's so much so that that when when you hit a kind of a, a, a sweet spot in focus, what do we call it for those that are the sports folks? You're in the 
the zone, right? Right? You're in the zone, right? This place, this focus place that we're trying to get into, you're in the zone, and nothing can disturb you out of that. And so, in keeping with that, a couple of years ago, when, when Jayla was in high school, she played a little bit of basketball. And we were at an away game, and she was playing, and the, um, the you know, the, the, the this particular time, we had uh, some friends come. The Haskins came and were going to watch Jayla play as well, which was a blessing, right, to have uh, some people come and root alongside us and see her play. And they came into the game, came and found us, sat with us, and we're enjoying the game. And then uh, one of the girls on the other side of the team, on the other team, rather, got fouled. And it was a shooting foul, right? So she lined up. They lined up everybody. She's at the free throw line. She's uh, got the ball. And for those of us that are over a certain age, basketball, sports are a little different, right? I, I mean, it, it used to be that, uh, you know, if you wanted a participation trophy, then you better win. There's no better participation trophy than winning, right? You, you, you want a trophy, you better beat somebody and get that trophy. But sports are a little bit different, so, so much so that in the gym, get this now, when, when we're playing uh, and, the, and the girl is about to shoot her free throws, the, gym, the whole gym goes silent. Silent. All you can hear is the girl's, the ball bouncing. Don't go. Don't go. She bends her knees, and right as she goes to shoot, someone yells, Miss it! And to our shock and horror, it was Sister Robin Haskins. <laughs> this is a true story, y'all. I mean, it, I, I, I would, I, if I had pearls, I'd have clutched them. I said, oh, my goodness. We don't do that in, in sports today. And it was so funny, right? I mean, so here this child was. I say child. That makes it sound even worse. Here this girl was <laughs> focusing on making this shot. And everybody had quieted down so that she could focus on this shot, so that she could have nothing but making this shot in her awareness. And along comes Sister Haskins that says, no. Miss it. I mean, perfectly timed. You, you, that lets me know she's done this before because it was, she wasn't fooled by the, you know, the, the, the pump or the, you know, she, she knew she came in in her heart. She had made up in her mind that she was going to do this. And look, it's a, it's a funny story. We still laugh about it today. It's still funny. I got permission, like I said, to, to tell the story. But here's the thing, right? It made me think about that a lot of times we're like that girl at the free throw line. We're so focused on whatever it is we're trying to do, wherever it is we're trying to get to, whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. And get this, right? The drumbeat of the world even quiets down to let you be focused on that thing. Oh, you want to achieve that? Yeah, let, let's come on. The world says, I'm going to help you be focused on that. And sometimes, it takes God to yell out, miss it. You're not the bad guy in the, in the story, Sister Robin. Just break our concentration to interrupt the focus that we have on what it is we want to do, what it is we're trying to accomplish, where it is we're trying to go. And I really think 
that that's a good kind of practical picture of what happens in Luke 2 with these shepherds. And so what I want us to do, right, is we're going to walk through this, we'll give a little bit of context, and then we'll go through this. And, and I won't be here long. I know you're probably thinking, yeah, whatever, you're going to be here. Uh, but my Titans aren't playing today. They're horrible. So even if they were playing, we'd still be... <laughs> I don't need to see that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be here for, no, we're not going to be here for a while. So let's go ahead and get into this. So just for a little bit of context, I know you guys know it, but I do want to set it because we're just breaking into Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. At the beginning of chapter 2, if you look at it, Luke takes us uh, to a very specific point in time and space. It's a point in history when Quirinus is the governor of Syria and Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. And it, he calls, Caesar does, for a registration, all the people, a registration of all the people within the Roman Empire, which means now that everybody needs to return to their hometown for this registration process. As such, Joseph leaves the town of Nazareth in Galilee, and he heads to Judea to Bethlehem, which is known as the city of David. And with him is Mary, who was pregnant. And of course, while they're in Bethlehem, Luke tells us she gives birth to Jesus. So that's a familiar story. We know that, right? And so what I want us to do now is over the next couple of verses, uh, 8 through 20, I want us to look at a couple of things, six things. If you're taking notes, I try to make this so that you can kind of follow along with what I'm doing here. In verse 8, we're going to look at a regular routine, a regular routine. <clears throat> in verses 9 through 12, we're going to look at an angelic announcement, in verses 13 and 14, we're going to look at a divine declaration. 15 and 16, a decisive decision. In 17 through 19, we're going to look at a critical confirmation. And then verse 20, a refocused return. All right. So in verse 8, even though Luke changes the scene on us, right, he still makes it clear that we're in the same region, the same region that we just got through talking about, the region where this registration is happening, where Joseph and Mary and the newborn baby Jesus are basically, namely, Bethlehem. But even though we're in the same region, we're not necessarily in the same place. You see, while Jesus is being born in the city of David, Luke takes us to a field, right? And we know the story well, like we talked about. In the field are the shepherds, and what are they doing? Well, they're doing what shepherds do. They're keeping watch over their flock. Now, not much known is about, not much is known about these shepherds, right? We don't, we're not told any of their names. We're not told how many there are. We don't know their backgrounds, only that they're in the field keeping watch over their flocks. And while we don't know anything specifically about these shepherds, some scholars have posited, they've pointed out, they've speculated at least that it's possible, get this, that these shepherds, since they were in Bethlehem, may have been tending the flock that belonged to the temple, the sheep that were used for the sacrifice. And while it can't be known for certain, it is an interesting speculation to think that while these shepherds were watching over the lambs that were used for the temple sacrifice, that the Lamb of God was being born in a city of Bethlehem. And while these verses serve to kind of set up what we later know to be an amazing event with the angels, I don't want to skip over this verse 8 too quickly without pointing out that while the Savior of the world was being born, these shepherds were in their regular routine of shepherding. 
that while Emmanuel, God with us, we just got through singing that, was breaking into time and space in the form of a baby, these shepherds were focused on their sheep. That while God's ultimate plan of cosmic redemption was being revealed, these shepherds were focused on their sheep. That while centuries-old prophecy was being literally fulfilled, these shepherds were focused on their sheep. Mm, Can I ask just a quick question? What sheep are keeping our attention today? Right now, while God is moving, what regular routine are we so focused on? While God is working, what regular routine is holding our attention while God is revealing? What regular routine has us captivated so much so that we're not even aware of what God is doing around us? So in verse 8, we see a regular routine, the shepherds just shepherding. But in verses 9 through 12, we see an angelic announcement. And it's as if God said, I need to do something big to break them out of their regular routine, to make them pay attention, to make them miss it. So he sends one of his angels. So get this scene in your mind. You and your shepherd buddies are in the field at night, right, watching over the sheep just like you've done countless number of times before, maybe even now and then having to fight off a coyote or a wolf or some type of wild animal that threatens the flock. But for the most part, it is a pretty routine, pretty much rinse and repeat kind of a night. And then all of a sudden, an angel appears. And with the angel... The glory of the Lord appears shining all around. Now, hmm, glory is one of those church words that uh, we've heard in church all of our lives, right? We, 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 we know kind of how to use it, when to use it, where to use it. And, and if you're sitting there saying, well, I didn't grow up in church, right? I, 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 it's not a church word to me. Well, if you're here today, you just heard it today in church, so it's a church word to you today. <laughs> Why are you so smart? <laughs> but it's one of those words, like I said, that, that, that I like to classify as a word that we know how to use. We know when to use it, but we would struggle to define it. We would say, oh, glory to God, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, let's glorify God. But if somebody said, excuse me, would you please explain to me what glory is? We'd say, well, you, oh, it's glory. We, we use the word in the definition. What is glory? It's glorious, right? You know, those kinds of things. Right? And, and I can't do, let's, let's just be fair, I, I can't do the word glory, the concept glory, biblically, I can't do it a service in just a section of a sermon, but I do want to at least give a little bit of an indication of what it is so that we have an appreciation for what it is that the shepherds are experiencing. See, in general, in Scripture, glory and respect to God is used in several different ways. This is part of why it's kind of hard to define as well, because sometimes it's used as an adjective. Sometimes it's used as a noun. Sometimes it's used as a verb, and, and, and sometimes if we kind of look through Scripture how it's used, sometimes it refers to God himself. Like in 2 Peter 1 and 17, when Peter calls God the majestic glory. Hmm. It sometimes refers to God's internal characteristics or his attributes. It's an indication that glorious is just what God is. In terms of his fullness, in terms of his splendor, in terms of his sufficiency, this is demonstrated in in references to God as king of glory, the God of glory, 
the Father of glory, the Lord of glory. And when he displays these attributes, he's demonstrating his glory. And when he does so, he brings glory to his name. So get this, right? God, who is full of glory, when he acts, he demonstrates his glory, which causes us to give his name glory. Hmm. Sometimes glory refers to the heavens or a heavenly realm, right? For example, when Paul tells the Ephesians that he is confident that his God will supply every need that they have according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Again, this is not an exhaustive walk down of what glory means in the Bible, but there is one more point that I think is extremely pertinent here, and that is that glory is sometimes used as a reference to God's presence. And we see this undeniably in the Exodus, where God's presence in the cloud and in the pillar of fire and on the mountain with Moses and in the tabernacle are all described as glory. And this isn't just a bright light, y'all. The primary Hebrew word for glory is based on, comes from a root word that means weight, heaviness. This is a presence that you can feel. It's a presence that makes it hard to remain standing. It's a presence that is so magnificent, it's so lovely, it's so altogether worthy, it's so perfect, it's so wonderful that sometimes, oftentimes, probably every time, all that you can do is bow down in reverence and in fear. Oh, wait a minute, fear. I, I don't like that. My God is a God of love. Well, I know it causes fear because the angel has to tell the shepherds, don't be afraid. I know you feel a weight coming upon you. Do not be afraid. I'm not here to dispense judgment on you. I'm not here to demand your soul, but I'm here to share some good news, some, some good news with you about a good thing that's going down in Bethlehem in a manger. Can I just time out here and just say something? As I was preparing this and I was looking at God's presence and, and what it was doing to people when he shows up or when his angels showed up, I could not help, Pastor, but think about all of these folks who talk about these encounters today that they've had with God, with angels or places they say they've gone. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not out trying to kick over everybody's experience, but it is something when, when everybody's experience now about the presence of the Lord is, I felt so warm and I felt full of love and it was, I was so comforted and it was so comfortable. But every biblical encounter with God's presence causes some fear and some trepidation. And that messes with us a little bit. But then I think this is a good example uh, that, that maybe helps us understand what's happening. Let's say you got invited somewhere. And you asked, well, what's the attire? And someone said, oh, don't worry. It's just comfortable, Sister Lavette. And so you come comfortably. <laughs> Whatever that means for you. But when you get there, Murph, you see folks suited and booted. Like it's Easter. And, and, and all of a sudden, that that you were so confident and comfortable in you don't, you feel a little, come. now you're in the presence of others who are dressed better than you. Others that are a little bit better put together than you. That that was so comfortable before you got there 
in the presence of these others that are now at a different level than you starts making you feel a certain kind of way. Not all warm and bubbly, but insecure. You, you become painfully now aware of just how underdressed you are. I'm not talking about clothes, y'all. What I'm talking about is that when we come into the presence of a holy, righteous, perfect God, I, look, I'm not saying God is not love. But what I'm saying is, is that that's not the first thing that happens. When I come into the presence of his weighty, when I come into, right, in, in, into encounter with his weighty presence, the first thing that happens is I am instantly made aware that he is God and I am not. He has to then move me to a place of uh, fear not <laughs> because I'm coming with something other than what you instinctively know should be coming your way. When you walk into a place and you're underdressed and you see everybody else dressed, you expect for somebody to ask you to leave. Some places will even give you a jacket. Put this on. Because we, we don't even want people... <laughs> We, we, we planned in advance for someone like you. Put this jacket on. So we've seen that the shepherd's uh, regular routine was interrupted by an angelic announcement. And that this angelic announcement now, we'll see in verse 13 and 14, is punctuated by a divine declaration. Let's look at the text again. The shepherds encounter one angel in the glory of the Lord and have to be calmed down, fear not. And then all of a sudden, appearing with this one angel is a multitude. How many is a multitude? It's a lot, that's right. The Greek says it's a lot. <laughs> Basically, it's a number that can't be counted. And you think about that, right? You, you, oh, 5, 10, 15, 20, that's about 30, 40. You know, you kind of go through it. This is so many that when the shepherds retold the story, they could not tell the number of the angels that appeared. The heavenly host was a multitude, right? More than the shepherds could count. It's, it's almost like, and this is, a, this is a funny thing I think about too, is that, is that when, when the angels were in the presence, in the throne room with God, and they were talking about, hey, look, the Savior is being born in Bethlehem. God is going to dispense us to go to the shepherds so that they would know what's going on and confirm and, and affirm what's happening. Uh, Y'all ready to do this? And they're like, yeah, let's go down here. And then it's like an angel said, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Maybe just one of us should go. Because we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to scare these shepherds to death, right? We don't want them to scatter. But you can imagine that if the sky just burst open with a multitude. So it's like one angel said, let me go down. Let me talk to them first. Make sure they know everything is everything. And then y'all come in, right? And once I let you know that everything is okay. Now, that's not scriptural. That's just my own imagination. So don't go quoting that to anybody. I'm trying to defend that. But we, we go now from one angel with a specific de detailed message now to a more uh, than can be counted number of heavenly beings that are doing what? Praising God. Specifically saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, this message has gotten twisted up over the years. 
It's been misconstrued and it's, ooh, look at me. It's been misconstrued and it's been uh, misused and taken out of context because what we commonly hear is it's peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And then this is taken as a meaning that everybody should be nice to one another. We all should try to get along. We, we all should have good intentions toward each other, especially at Christmas time. After all, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But that is not the message that the heavenly host is communicating. If I'm messing up with your Christmas story, just stay with me. I'm trying to refocus, right? We're just trying to get refocused on the Christ of Christmas. This is more a statement indicating that because of what has happened in the city of David, because of the babe that is wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, because of who this child is and what he will grow up and do on a hill called Calvary, there now can be peace between God and man. And God is not just pleased with men, but he's pleased with those who accept his son as Lord and Savior. Do we see that? That's, a, that's an important distinction, Mike. Because one lets me just do what I want to do and feel good about being nice to other people. The other demands a decision on my part to partake in this peace and this goodwill. Hmm. <laughs> So the heavenly host is not making an appeal for just generic world peace. Of course, we should be nice to one another. Of course, we should try to do our best towards one another. But they are declaring that through the life, death, and resurrection of this child born in Bethlehem, the wrath of God is satisfied. And it can now be avoided by those who claim Christ as their Savior, thus giving them peace with God. Now, in verse 15, and this is wild to me because the angels go back into heaven. Like, okay, our job is done. Peace. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, one shows up, the glory of the Lord is with them. An uncountable number shows up, praise God, and then boom, gone. They obviously felt like that's enough. Like our job is done here. And the shepherds, right, they're not looking for their sheep. They're not trying to figure out what just happened, but they make a decisive decision to go into Bethlehem and see this thing, to see this thing that has happened. And, and watch this. Look at the text. It says that they go and they make a decision to see this thing that has happened that the Lord has made known to them. And the text says that they went without haste to find Jesus. I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. Because don't you know that after all of that, that after an angel appeared and after the glory of the Lord shone all about and after a bunch of other angels appeared that you could not even count and after they all started singing on cue and praising God, don't you know that some of us would have been like, well... Maybe that wasn't from God. Maybe it was something we ate. It is late. <laughs> maybe it was our minds playing tricks on us. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Can, can I help some of us out here today just, just to share a few things? If you're sitting here, if you're watching from home, and, and, and while you might not have been visited by angels, I get that. Not all of us have that as a testimony. God has still made something 
very clear to you about what you should do. Mm -hmm. He's made it so clear that what, what, what he's saying and, and, and what he has said to you, uh, that, that you can't ignore it anymore. I'm, I'm going to keep pushing at this thing because some of you think I might only be talking about a call into ministry. Or I might only be talking about some kind of sacrificial donation or going on a mission trip uh, or, or, or something what we would consider really big. But I'm talking about even something simply as God calling us to repentance and to obedience. You know he's tugging at your heart. You know that he's convicted your conscience. You know that he's beckoning you out of bondage in Egypt, but you're still wringing your hands and talking about maybe and not sure. It, it, God, is that you? Is, is that what you want me to do? All those kinds of things. Stop playing. We know it's him. And do like these shepherds did and make a decisive decision. Get off of the fence. Stop wavering back and forth. Stop trying to balance out six days of playing with one day of praying. Mm -hmm, you'll figure that out on the way home. Make a decisive decision about the place that God and his Christ will have in your life. Hmm. These shepherds, these shepherds, they head into town from the field. And in my mind's eye, I see them kind of going from person to person asking where the Christ is. You can imagine, right? And if you had been in a field and all of that happened, when you got to the city of David, you would expect the city of David to be just on fire, right? Because if we were in the field and heard about this thing, surely the folks in the sound know what's going on. And I can imagine, again, this is just my heavenly imagination, as the old pastors used to say, uh, that, that as they were going around, they were likely getting some strange looks from folks who didn't have the luxury of having been visited by a heavenly host. And, and I see them going from manger to manger. I, I see them looking for a child and probably getting some even stranger looks as they're looking for a child in a manger uh, until they come upon Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. Now, I did a little bit of research because I was just curious about this. Uh, during this time, it's estimated that Bethlehem probably contained about two to 3,000 people. And I think that it's safe to say that Jesus likely wasn't the only baby in Bethlehem that night. Now, to be clear, we're not told this. I, I don't think uh, you can't point to Scripture and see this, but I don't think it's unreasonable to believe that as the shepherds kind of made their way through the town, they probably encountered some other babies as they went in and asking, has there been any babies born? Somebody said, yeah, my, my, uh, my sister just had a baby. Well, let's go see. Well, my, my, my cousin just had a baby. Well, let's, let's go see. Hey, my daughter just had a baby. Let's, let's go see. Right? And, and I don't think that's unreasonable, that they may have encountered other babies. But they weren't just looking for a baby. They were looking for the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. What am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? I'm just simply trying to point out that what the shepherds came to Bethlehem looking for was Jesus. And as a result, any old baby wouldn't do. 
They came to Bethlehem looking for a Savior. They came to Bethlehem looking for the Messiah. They may have come across some cute babies on the way. They may have come across some cuddly infants as they were looking for Jesus, but they weren't looking for a convenient placeholder. They weren't looking for something that was close enough. They were looking for something that they had been told about, that they had been given specific details about. And when they came upon Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they had to make a critical confirmation. They had to evaluate. They said, look, here's a baby, check. Lying in a manger, check. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, check. In the city of David, check. Just like the angel told us. And when they shared what they had experienced in the field with those around, it says that they were amazed. Can I help us out again? Because really what I, I, I see this and I think about this is that, look, we can't settle for Jesus' substitutes. I know y'all are wondering, where is he going with this? We can't settle for Jesus' substitutes in our life. What's a Jesus' substitute? A Jesus' substitute is anything or anyone that you and I look to to sustain our lives, to give us joy, to give us peace, to give us our identity. I know it seems a bit straightforward, but I feel like I should lean on this a little bit more. I got a list. I'm going to read every last one of these. Your finances, your occupation, your education, your skill set, your talents, your looks, your husband, your wife, your children, your pets, your house, your car, your clothes, your jewelry, your political party, your fraternity, your sorority, your secret society, your church, your pastor, your ministry, your network, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexual desires, your alcohol, your weed, your pills, your social media. Should I keep going? <laughs> Cheap substitutes. And the shepherds were in the city of David looking for Jesus, not just any old baby. We've looked at the shepherds' regular routine and how that was interrupted by an angelic announcement, which was then amplified by a divine declaration, which then led to the shepherds making a decisive decision that then resulted in a critical confirmation. And in verse 20, Luke brings us back full circle. Thank you, Luke. As the shepherds we first met in the field, minding their own business, are now returning to the field, but something is different. These shepherds who previously were just focused on shepherding, who previously were just focused on watching over the flock, who, who were just doing what they needed to do their nine to five, clock in and clock out, now return to the field, Luke tells us, glorifying and praising God. Not that their sheep were all still safe. Look at the sheep. They're all still here. Not that no one from the temple found out they were gone. But guys, we left these sheep just in the field and we went into the town. No. But they were praising God for all they had heard, all they had seen, that it had been laid out by the angels. Yes, these shepherds were still shepherds. We got to see this and get this. Yes, they were headed back to the same field that they were in at the beginning of the story. They were going to watch the same sheep that they were watching at the beginning of the story. Can I just push it even further? They were going to have to deal with the same stinks 
smells, odors that they dealt with before finding Jesus. They were going to have to deal with the same hazards that they had to deal with before. They were going to have to deal with some of the same threats that they had to deal with before. But something about these shepherds was different. Even though they were back to shepherding, they weren't focused on shepherding. But instead, they were focused on their encounter with the angels, with God's presence, with the Christ child. They were refocused in their return. Hmm. So solid word. This is my closing, guys. Very simply, this Christmas season, make sure our focus is on Christ on who he is, on what he came to do, on the fact that he is everything that the scriptures say that he is, and that even now he sits at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. Sometimes there can be a big letdown after the holidays. Hmm. The presents are all open. The food is all eaten up. Family has gone home. Decorations start being put back in the Rubbermaid containers and stored back in the basement. It's always fun to put that stuff up. Not very much fun to take it down. The stores start pulling down the red and green and start putting up, what is it, white and red for Valentine's Day. The, 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 the Sirius XM radio channel that has all the holiday stuff, I mean, the day after, gone. Well, my family will tell you, I love eggnog. Let me tell you something. My days of being able to buy eggnog are getting numbered. <laughs> because the world is ready to turn the page. Turn the page. But I'm telling you that if you want, I'm talking to myself too, if we want the spirit of Christmas, I'm not even going to use that language. If we want the real meaning of God breaking into space and time, in Jesus, the Christ, to redeem and to reconcile his creation back to him, if we want the joy that's related to that event to last throughout beyond 25th of December, then we probably shouldn't focus on what displays Coles has up or what music Sirius XM is playing or what uh, drinks Kroger has, but we probably should get our focus on the Christ of Christmas. Well, that was a weak clap, but that's okay. Because <laughs> you're not clapping for me. What I'm telling you is that what Christ came to do, he's still doing even right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, yet still interceding on our behalf, yet still saying, don't worry, my blood covers that too, Father. So there it is. I got an invitation for us. If you want to know the Christ of Christmas, not the baby in a manger story, but the Christ of Christmas. Do we know, we know what Christ means, right? Christ is the, is, is the English word for the Greek word for the Hebrew word the anointed one, the Messiah. It's not Jesus' name. It's a title. Right? 
we want to know the anointed one of Christmas, of this, of this that we're celebrating, of, of all of this that's going on, there's an invitation that awaits you. And that invitation goes like this. If you recognize, right, that there are thoughts in your mind, there are desires in your hearts, there are actions that you perform that are counter to what God's Word says, then what you've identified is what plagues us all is that we've got a sin problem. Sin doesn't mean that you're doing the worst thing across every category that ever could be done. Sin just simply means you want to do what you want to do. That's all it means. And it can be as small as telling what we call a little white lie all the way up to killing somebody. But it's about my will be done. And God says, look, I created everything. I established everything. I caused everything to go into motion. Uh, and there can only be two I will be done, or one I will be done in a situation like this. There can't be two. It can't be your will and my will be done. And we're instantly, right, at odds with God. But God, being the loving Father of His creation, says, We're at odds. <laughs> we're, we're at war with one another, but I'm going to take the first step to establish peace. I'm not the offender, says God, but I will be the one who negotiates the peace. And he sends his son Jesus, not just to teach us and to show us and to, to push back against things, but to die for us. And to close that gap between God's will being done and our will being done. That's the story of Christmas. For unto you in the city of David is born a Savior, the Christ. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.